Welcome to the CNS Podcast featuring Dr. Daryl Anaba, Research Director for CNS Productions. Hi, and welcome once again to the CNS Addiction Podcast. I'm Howard Lemire, here with Dr. Daryl Anaba. And uh, today I want to talk about um, you, Daryl. Um, a couple of decades ago, around 85 or so, you were one of the founders or the primary founder of the American, the Asian American Recovery Service uh, services in the San Francisco Bay Area. And just recently, uh, they had a major award ceremony and gave you a whole parcel of awards. Congratulations. Well, thank you, Howard. It's uh, actually, I feel like I should have given them an award because it's probably one of the most meaningful things and meaningful periods of my life was working on trying to establish culturally relevant services uh, for Asian uh, Americans and Pacific Islanders in, in the city of San Francisco, which has a very large population right. uh, of Asian uh, and Pacific Islanders. And yet, uh, even um, in, the, in the 70s, they, uh, there was no program that targeted cultural, culturally targeted for that community. Uh, and a misbelief by uh, the funders and the people in power in San Francisco that Asians didn't have drug problems, even when they were facing us from the community saying, hey, we have drug problems. We need for you to have uh, some funding for us to establish a program that could be more effective in addressing, attracting, and holding uh, these clients into treatment. So uh, we had to fight pretty hard, and it's... uh, and one thing that did, you know, it, we it had a vision. We developed a vision for what we wanted uh, for that community. And with that vision, uh, we developed sort of focus and purpose, and they kept denying us stuff and causing more and more obstacles for us to move forward. And that just kind of got us more excited and, and more enraged about doing something. And it was like the 60s again in the 70s where we were – meeting every week, uh, we're scheming and strategizing, and we're, we're making uh, attacking all of the obstacles and barriers they had uh, to move forward. So we had to first do empirical research. Amazingly, we found uh, in the 1980, there wasn't a single funded study done by the United States on Asian substance abuse issues. Every other community had been funded to look at what's going on, how can we intervene, but absolutely zero. And they used that against us, saying there's no data, there's no documentation, you guys have a problem. So that stimulated us. So obviously you don't have a problem. (laughs) Right. Uh, The lack of interest uh, is is the problem, but for them, it documented we didn't have a problem. So what we did was actually we had uh, good researchers on our task force. We started as the San Francisco Asian American Substance Abuse Task Force. Had Dr. Davis Jaw, uh, Dr. Herb Z. Wong. Uh, we also had a guy named Jerome Beck from UC Berkeley, social department. And we actually did empirical research. We, we got respected empirical research to show there was a significant problem in this community but it wasn't being addressed uh, from internalized. The Asians who had drug problems didn't even know it was a treatable condition. They, they, they bought the moral weakness type of thing, and mm-hmm. they bought the disgrace type of thing, and uh, less than 5% of, of the people we uh, located and were able to interview and, and do our uh, research on felt that uh, 
didn't even know. They didn't have a knowledge that this was a treatable condition. And very few had ever gotten treatment. They got it in the eclectic programs in the San Francisco Bay Area. And the other thing that was uh, very curious, uh, unlike other communities, we had to compare it with the African-American community, Latino community, Anglo community in San Francisco. We found that uh, unlike the, those communities, which, which were getting all the press and the headlines and you know the, the uh, evolution of crack cocaine, the heroin, things like that, uh, the Asian uh, youngsters who were abusing drugs were into prescription drugs. They were uh, diverting things like quaalude at the time, which was thought to be non-addictive and right. developed tremendous addiction. So one of the uh, interventions we knew had to, that had to be done was we had to develop quaalude treatment because you had in San Francisco heroin treatment, you had cocaine treatment, you had meth treatment, you had alcohol treatment, but nobody had any kind of, you even had PCP treatment, but nobody even advertised that you can treat quaalude addiction or quaalude addiction needed treatment. So we went forward with our research and after we got uh, that established, the uh, funders in the county government looked at this and says, okay, you got a problem, all right, but you lack the expertise. There aren't any Asian, you know, substance abuse experts who are culturally adept to have a program and to, and to clinically move forward with a program. And uh, we didn't know enough to be realized anyway that we were actually being insulted <laughs> i mean here we were professionals who'd come up with the need and, and we're experiencing it we're treating it and we're told there's no expertise so we didn't realize we were being insulted so we did a national search we tried to attract uh, asians with the right credentials and background to move to san francisco and head this thing up and then we sat down one friday night when we were meeting says wait a minute you know we're all treating people. We're all seeing this, and we all have expertise. We all have credentials. We all have sort of all these wonderful things. So we started looking at that and logging what we all had, and we found out that we compared favorably with every other drug treatment program in San Francisco in terms of expertise, experience, in terms of credentials, and all that was needed. So we came back through that in their faces, and then we were hit with the fact that, well, that's all good and well, but you have no infrastructure. You have no 501c3. You have no so it facility. Sounds like, it sounds like they're picking on you. Uh, they were just stalling. You know, who, who encounter, even especially today, how are they going to fund a new program? <laughs> you know, right. they, they've got too many sacred cows to keep going already, and they didn't want to fund another program. But we had a real need. And so. They're right in terms of we needed a, uh, a nonprofit organization and we needed a facility and go through the rigorous sort of licensing, the regulations, the hearings, the um, all the permit process so that we can start doing services. But luckily, we had a member on our committee, uh, task force rather, uh, Jeffrey Morey, who's the current CEO of the Asian American Recovery Services. Uh, who was a friend of another uh, long-term uh, nonprofit health care, mental health care uh, program in San Francisco called uh, Westside Community Mental Health Services. And they had a facility that was open and vacant. They had uh, certainly the 501c3, and they had the, ex you know, the, the whole uh, respect of the city. So we approached them and uh, asked if they can be our fiscal agent. We can come under their auspices until we got our own 501c3 nonprofit status. And they, right. 
they invited us in, so we came back and hit the city over the head with that, and they had to open our program. And 25 years later, uh, you know, the program is now in three counties. It's the largest Asian treatment program in the United States. It's doing very well and and most gratifying and, and most uh, wonderful thing that happened was uh, one of our early uh, directors, David Mineta, uh, this year was appointed by uh, President Obama and brought to the Office of National Drug Control Policy as the deputy director under Gil Kolonoski, who's the, of course, the drug czar, but he's the de- deputy director on the demand uh, reduction side of the two-front battle that the Office of National Drug Control Policy is waging against drug and alcohol abuse in the United States. So he becomes the top person in the country to oversee treatment and prevention of, of substance abuse. And I'm so proud of Dave and so proud of the organization that we've, we've reached that in 25 years and sort of just wave my tongue bear nose or I don't know what you call it, but look funny at the city who said we had absolutely no expertise to run a program. Well, let's uh, you bring up the interesting topic here of um, cultural diversity, and um, again, congratulations on on that um, astounding work that that you did do twenty five years ago, and and the Asian American uh, Recovery Services continuing good work. But uh, can we talk a little bit about the difference in in cultures and and how how that's relevant in treatment? Every culture, and culture is, is one important thing is, um, you know, I, I certainly don't want to stimulate stereotypes. And right. want people look at stereotypes. And a culture is, is a, a grouping of individuals who have sort of a common entity. They might be a, a culture of Catholics or a culture of Protestants because they certainly have from that religious perspective, a culture. Uh, you might look at ethnicity, but even when you look at ethnicity, like we're looking at uh, Chinese Americans as, as being part of our Asian American uh, task force uh, aimed to develop culturally relevant programs, and we astounded to find like there's over 340 different dialects of Chinese right. and if you're 50 miles away in another village, you might not even speak the same language, although the written language is the same. But in addition to that, there's so many variables in terms of, of belief systems, in terms of value systems and, and ethics systems. So uh, a culture is, is once you define a, a group that are bond together by a certain element. In this case, uh, we are all considered Asian and Pacific uh, Americans. So... What then is key or crosses all the seams, those microcultures within a culture that sets it apart from, say, uh, other cultures like African-American culture or Latino, which is extremely diverse culture, is totally different. You know, you can be Puerto Rican, you can be Chicano, you can be South American, right. Central. Right. It's, it's totally different, but... And that was the research we did. We did some ethnographic research where we immersed ourselves within the Asian drug-taking communities of the San Francisco Bay Area. And we took, uh, had our, uh, our ethnographers take field notes, uh, not translating what they heard, but writing the things down as they heard them from the communities and then trying to find out what they were talking about by doing the research and, and even the drug buys 
if they were talking about a certain, you know, loot or something, we wanted to make sure it wasn't PCP, so we had to buy it and find out what they were talking about, the right. fatties, they called them, things like that. But writing in, uh, down from their own language and their own perspective what they were, and then looking at that uh, from uh, a bunch of uh, treatment experts that we had and looking at how that may vary from other cultures. Like I mentioned, they were into ludes. They were into fatties. They were into F4. Uh, you know, they were into uh, 720s and, and uh, different names for a drug that turned out to be street and also diverted methoclone or methoquelone or quaalude. And that was very different from what the African-American youths were into or the Latino youths were into or, or the uh, Anglo youths were into. So, uh, you know, that, as I mentioned, one of, a, a culturally relevant thing is to promote that we understand what that drug is, what it does, and we, most importantly, that it's, it's a treatable addiction and that treatment will be uh, beneficial and putting that message out to the street and out to the communities and training our professionals, you know, how to deal with that addiction and what they're going to be looking for, how we make the interventions, what medical interventions needed, and that's just a general thing. Uh, but Asians also, um, and I don't really want, again, not want to stereotype, and especially there's multi-generations. You know, you got fourth generation, fifth generation, mm -hmm. totally different from first or second generations mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. monolingual. But we're finding in, in the populations, we're mostly dealing with, uh, with primarily third generation, second or third generation Asians. And they uh, retain with them a, uh, a respect of not overburdening people with their problems. They weren't people who, you know, they didn't lay other people's problems, <laughs> their problems on other people. So right. they held their, their problems within. They, they didn't want to share about them. Uh, they also uh, were more uh, listeners than speakers. They didn't want to uh, insult anybody by putting words into people's mouths, so they were just set back. So that was great. I think that's a great cultural value, but it's not good if you're trying to recover from drugs and alcohol from based upon what we know in, in our treatment system. So we had to address those those two differences. We had to have uh, Asians being able to express themselves more and they were more reserved and they didn't express themselves and didn't express their problems. I remember the first uh, group I had with uh, main, mainly male gangbangers in, in the meeting, uh, a few women, but I, I think I waited. They taught me in, in training about uh, therapy or, or clinical work that uh, silence is the best pressure of all. Mm -hmm. And it'll get people talking. Mm -hmm. I remember waiting a whole hour and nobody said a damn thing. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously we needed another way of doing it. And we had Paul Saki, who was a... So a, you're actually training beyond beyond drug treatment. You're, you're training in communication skills. Yeah, we're training in, in how to get the and, things... And, and interpersonal relationship. Exactly. We it's It's a culturally relevant thing. You had to develop a whole different approach if you're going to deal with a culture who has different values. And we had a uh, arts, uh, a drama student uh, from San Francisco State uh, in our task force, and he says, you know, we've been looking at this in, uh, in our school at San Francisco State, and there's this thing called expressive arts therapy, 
Like sometimes people are easier to express themselves through playing a role uh, rather than saying it's themselves that's, that's experiencing this. Uh, it's called psychodrama as well. And he created something called the I Can Do It Now Theater where we would take the Asians who came into our residential program and we had a program that wanted them to stay in residential treatment for two years, a rigorous treatment. And we developed sort of play for them and they took on different plays and roles. And the play was loosely built around the lives that they had. So it was expressing their frustrations, their alienation, their detachment from the world around them, their their feelings of ambivalence toward their parents who they looked at as, you know, old-fashioned and relics and people didn't belong in this society. And we took all the relevant issues that they had and we made a play out of it and they played the play and then they performed it uh, uh, always before a couple hundred people. You know, we had big open galas and prevented different as different groups came through presented play, and, and every individual had finally made deeper impact about what they're trying to do by playing a part in this in, in this role. So um, that was, I think, another intervention. Uh, we had to work with families. And like with the Asian-American community, they're so either solidly enmeshed with overbearing, over-dominant, parents and families that are pushing them one way or you got to be this way to be successful or they got to overachieve and all that or the opposite we had two ends of the pole nothing in between and the other end of the pole was where they are totally a family they don't the, the parents are both working they're never home they're latchkey kids they don't have siblings that that they get along with and they're out out on their own self so they develop sort of the uh, extended families with gangs and other street people that's conducive to drug use. So we had to uh, work a, a lot with developing a family treatment system and especially uh, getting the uh, nuclear family involved where parents uh, almost to, to a total degree believe that the drug problem was the fault of their kids. They didn't want to own any part of it or be part about it. And the kid has to take care of himself and get better. And otherwise, he's garbage and they don't exist. And we had to address that with with family education therapy and bring it about if we were going to be successful. And um, thank goodness we were successful with the, with the families who participated. Um, family members would not appreciate the ex-addict. You know, if you're an ex-addict counselor or if you're from the street, they didn't value that. They, they value the American belief that you have to be a doctor or you have to be a Ph.D. or you have to be a nurse or something. So right. we had to play that game. There were, Overall, I think I document in our book, Uppers, Downers, All Arounders, on the treatment section of culturally consistent treatment, something like 15 key interventions that we had to address Asian Pacific Islanders that were different than addressing African Americans or Anglos, and that's that's what culturally relevance is. It's, it's bringing treatment uh, from that community, sometimes in the language of that community, in the style of that community, in the culture of that community. And the more, what well, there was a California uh, CalData study that found uh, that found that for every culturally specific program, as compared to generic treat everybody program, for every cultural intervention that was made, there was a factoring or a doubling in the success rate. So the more you uh, identified and addressed, the more success you had in treatment. So the more specific it is to to the individual 
and to, and to the particular group that well, they're involved in. I would say the more meaningful. I, I think it's, it's... More meaningful. Yeah, it's more meaningful for them. It makes sense to them, and uh, mm-hmm. they can participate more. Well, it's exciting that, that, the, uh, that one of your colleagues there is, is now in charge of the federal uh, prevention aspect, and, and hopefully we'll see the economy uh, improve here um, more rapidly than, than less rapidly. And an increase in the ability to provide more treatment because we continue to read about, like I was reading a story about Florida and about uh, the prescription, uh, prescription addiction and, and the fact that there's treatment available and there's like no one there because it's so horrendously expensive. Well, that's, that's what I'm hoping that uh, David, uh, and he's working with Tom McClellan, who's there, uh, Gil Kolonoski, the new drug czar, and I'm hoping that for the first time we actually see a shift in, in the priorities of mm-hmm. the Office of National Drug Control Policy and they, they start spending more money on treatment and prevention and less money and on, uh, on intervention and on supply reduction. Now, I don't mean well, it's, overall it's, less. I just mean the sh- a shift, you know. As well, the money. yeah, it's, and it's got to be worth a try because obviously what we've been doing for 40 <laughs> years hasn't been working too well. Absolutely, and da- David's the right guy. David's the right guy. Tom McClellan's the right guy. I think Gill's the right guy, and I'm hoping they can uh, bridge both sides of the uh, aisle. Congress, Congress is becoming much more uh, separatist with uh, each Democrats versus Republicans and attacking each other. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, if somebody, one of the parties uh, favors something, the other party attacks it, but. Uh, these people have a chance, I think, of bridging the aisle, hoping getting movements for we start to uh, move forward in in terms of the war on drugs rather than the regressive, as you're talking about, for close to 60-something years, investing so heavily in supply reduction and being such gross failures in that. Right. Well, yeah. Yeah, let's hope that it, it turns uh, it turns a corner and we see some success. All, that's all we can do is hope and continue to work at it. So, um, uh, again, congratulations on, on those honors and and that work that, that was started uh, by you 25 years ago or 25, 30 years ago. And uh, those of you listening, of course, we'd love to hear from you. If you have comments or questions, uh, please drop by the website, cnsproductions.com, and drop us a note there. Um, Daryl, uh, again, congratulations, and we'll talk again soon. Thank you for flattering me with talking about my <laughs> award, but thank you very much. Well, Howard. thank you. That wraps our pod for today. Thanks for visiting the CNS Podcast. Please check back soon for the next in the series and visit our website, www.cnsproductions.com. <laughs>